Originally, I thought I was going to write an, a little operetta, you know, as one does, <laughs> about the shepherd. And I thought, it, I'm just going to write, and I'm going to have the shepherd and the man from Corinth who takes Oedipus as a baby, and the two of them, and they've been caught, and they're going to be killed. I'm Diana O'Connor. Welcome to the Dingle Lit Podcast. Diagwit agus fóta dan podcrail fela litrha gwerchigwina. Each year, at the end of November, Dingle Lit Book Festival brings together a unique weekend programme of events in English and Osgwelga on the Dingle Peninsula. Back in 2020, when the Dingle Lit Festival was entirely online, Carlo Gebler interviewed Sarah Baum, a former student in his creative writing course. Speaking over Zoom from opposite ends of the country, they promised to return in real life. In 2021, the pair finally got to sit down together in Dingle, where this time Sarah was the interviewer. They chatted about Gebler's book, I Antigone, a retelling of the Greek myth of Oedipus Rex, as written by his daughter Antigone. It's a fascinating look at the complexities of blame, punishment and justice, all problems which resonate as much today as they did in the times of myth. Well, I need to start this with a confession because when I offered, or when I invited myself, I suppose, back to Dingle to interview you on your novel, your forthcoming novel, I suppose it was probably written at the time. No, it was being written at the being time. Written. But yeah. um, anyway, I did not know and had no way of knowing that it would be a retelling of Greek myth. Um, and I must admit that when, um, when I realized that, I thought, oh no, <laughs> um, because my, my, my grasp of Greek myth, I suppose, is patchy is very much um, kind of comes from, gleaned from popular culture, something I realized now as I was reading it. Um, and so my first dilemma on picking up the book was, and don't be horrified, do I Google things beforehand? Or do I, and then read the book? Or do I read the book and then Google things afterwards? <laughs> I would Google first. Always go to Dr. Google. Yeah. Why do you think, um, I mean, in popular culture, the classics live on a bit, a bit. But why have, why has all that wealth, do you think, kind of, why is it not um, central to the educational system? Well, that, I mean, I can only imagine that, and, and this is one of the reasons I thought I'm a bad person for this, because I fear that my, my grasp of Greek myth is worse than the average person, because I never studied anything academic at college. So I have this presumption that most people do know more than me, <laughs> but perhaps I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm sure you're wrong. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it didn't matter. You're, you're right. I did Google it first. And I mean, on the back, it mentioned Sophocles and the Thebian plays and Oedipus. So I had, obviously, I wasn't trying to cover the, the, entire, um, the entire story of ancient Greece. But then, I, at times, I slightly regretted knowing what was coming. Ah. Um, and, and felt at the end that I really didn't need to have known anything at all, that it's just a wonderfully told story. Um, about themes that are universal, mm. um, and that it would have carried me had I not known, mm. you know, had I not known that mm. ancient Greece had existed at all. Mm. Well, I mean, both of my parents were writers, and um, you absorb osmotically or unconsciously values. And one of the values that they um, promulgated, and I was going to say preached, but you never heard them say this, was the idea that everything must be accessible. No, no impediment to the uploading and the 
imbibing and the absorption of literary culture must be allowed to exist. So your job as a writer is to organize the content so that people acquire the knowledge they need to know, get the names, get the facts, get the backstory. Yeah, that was that was there, and and that connected. I now I didn't understand at the time. I now understand, particularly in my father's case, but in my mother's case as well, connected to their politics, mm. which were that uh, culture is for everybody. Yes, and Greek culture, which is I, I mean, as I read it, I I think I said to Mark, my partner, several times, oh, I get it now. I get the whole first thing about Greek myth, <laughs> <laughs> and and the first was essentially it's it's the earliest set of stories that we have written down. Yeah. Um, and these, uh, that's fiction, um, you know, even though it, it, it might not be fiction, um, that have repeated over and over and over again. It's, it's really the cradle of all literary culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 I mean the, there's Sophocles in the Theban plays, there's um, Aeschylus, um, and then there's Homer, and there's Lesbos. So there is... And then after them, there's Herodotus and various, and you know, Seneca and various Romans who built on these people. But yeah, they are the, they are the, they are, they are pretty important. Mm. Um, and now these were these these would have been composed. The original Greek myths, the, the original Sophoclean story, would have existed um, as something that was remembered and retold. And then Sophocles um, produced his three Theban plays, they were written down. I don't know whether they were written down at the moment he composed them, or whether they were written down by, the, whether the actors who had learned them, they then declaimed them and it was then transcribed. I'm not quite certain about okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So it's just on the cusp of the movement from the oral to the, to the written. And they're written as plays. They, yes. Were they written in? They were written as yes. It'll say things stage like stage direction. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, all of um, Oedipus Rex, which is the first of the three Theban plays. It takes place in front of the palace in Thebes, and Jocasta comes out. Jocasta goes, or sort of comes out and goes in. Ditto, Oedipus. And yes, there's absolute fidelity to the idea of creating a realistic play. Mm -hmm. So. It's a watch mechanism, and it has to keep time, and it has to take place over a set period of time, and it has to be credible. It actually takes place over the course of a day, but yeah. So they were trying to trying to be realistic. Actually, not trying, were realistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but so much is left out then, in that that comes into prose. You know, you're telling it as prose narrative. Yeah, because um, the story of Oedipus which exists in the play, which the audience who would have seen the play or the Theban plays would have brought to the performance is much more complicated than the version provided in the play. In the play, very simply, Oedipus, for various reasons, outs himself as the killer of Laius, his wife Jocasta's first husband, and as a man who is in an incestuous Union, because he is married to Jocasta, who is also his mother. Basically, that's what happens in it. But what people would have known, which isn't in the play, is that Laius, whom Oedipus is the son of and whom Oedipus has killed, murdered, 
in a rage without knowing he was his father. He has a huge, complicated backstory. Mm. And, his, and, and then behind that is the backstory of Thebes. In order to under, what I what I realized looking at the story was that what was really interesting was Jocasta's fate. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, she she had a rough time. She boy, <laughs> did she have a rough time? And she gets the least lines in the play. Okay. But is probably the most uh, talks the best sense because mm-hmm. Jocasta's counsel is, don't look under the stone, mm-hmm. don't stir things up, because Jocasta knows also doesn't know but she's got a pretty she, she would have a she would no, well she would she has a sense of what might have happened but she i.e. that the man that she's married to has killed her husband and that she's now married to the man who murdered her husband she might she sense I, I feel that she sensed that if she chose to delve she would discover that but she chooses not to delve. Um, she suffers a lot and has very little choice in matters um, and is constantly subject to the will of others. Yeah, um, absolutely. And which can be said of really most characters, apart from a couple of powerful men. <laughs> yeah. But, um, apart from Laius, perhaps. Well, Laius um, is... Everyone is suffering for someone else's mistakes. Yeah, but Laius is also suffering because he, is, he, is the, he, he has raped Chrysippus. Well, yes, but he did do that. Himself. He did do that of his own accord. <laughs> so Laius is brought up in in a in a foreign court, and um, he falls in love with one of the sons of the king, who he's who, with whom he grows up, who's younger than him, and he he rapes him, and then he brings him to Thebes, and Chrysippus kills himself, and the Chrysippus story is very very famous, and there's the most beautiful visual representation of. Chrysippus's life and death. Oh, where's it? Um, well, on right. statuary that I've seen photographs of that are in various museums. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, that was actually something I wondered out about because having a, having a poor grasp of Greek myth, the thing that fascinated me most was the minor characters, really. Mm. Um, and I mean, they weren't minor characters, they became major characters, but they were essentially um, what, what we think of as like the henchmen, you know. Um, if I'm to compare it to like dramas that I watch on Netflix, you know, there's all of these sort of disposable <laughs> characters along yeah. the way that you know they're going to die as soon as they walk into the frame kind of thing. Um, and I mean, really like um, uh, Chrysippus, I would have definitely pronounced that one wrong, uh, Calidice, um, yeah. who's uh, Jocasta's maid, and then um, her Laundry son. Laundry maid. Laundry maid, yeah. yes, um, yeah, crucial. Uh, some some very uh, interesting details about um, laundry in Greek times and ancient Greece, um, and then her son, who is the shepherd. Um, uh, these were all very, you know, small uh, bit parts essentially, and people who have absolutely no no free will, um, and and yet they were the ones that fascinated me. Um, that they were they were the people whose side that I was on, really. They're the little um, people. Though I knew that they were going to perish as well in a way as well. Oh, you know? Calidice and. And uh, Antimedes, her son, their fates are—they're absolutely terrible. But the, um, Antimedes, who is who's just simply called the shepherd, in in Sophocles' play, he is he is the spindle around which the whole uh, narrative turns, because he is the poor sap, whom Laius says. Well, actually, it's Jocasta, or Laius and Jocasta together. Here's a baby, it's Oedipus, take him to the mountain and leave him to die. Mm. 
They're not prepared to do that. And they have to do that because the, um, the Delphic Oracle has told Laius that this child will grow up and mm -hmm. kill him. But, but they don't know that either. So they don't know what they're doing they, when Laius, they choose to save the baby. Yeah, the shepherd, doesn't yeah, and, know. Antimedes doesn't know it now. Mm -hmm. So off he goes with the baby to the slopes of Citheron, thinking, mm. I leave this baby to die. I'm going to be cursed. You're not meant to. So he gives the baby to someone else who brings it to Corinth and the baby grows up to be Oedipus. He goes back to Thebes and then he sort of rises socially and he becomes Laius's sort of butler grand. Then there's a new catastrophe and Laius is going off to consult the oracle in Delphi again as to how to deal with this catastrophe. And he has the shepherd Antimedes with him. And that's when they meet Oedipus, and that's when Oedipus kills Laius. And Antimedes, he knows who that man is. Because he knows, he's been told when he was given the baby, he's got all the information. And he just zips it and goes back onto the slopes. But in the end, he's outed, and they find him, and, and they kill him. <laughs> Yeah. Everybody gets killed. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> yes, it's very... Or kills themselves. Yeah, because you don't have... Because what's in, what interested me about the story is, is that you've got in the world now, particularly, we do decide to do what we decide to do. And at the same time, our decision to do what we decide to do feels completely... feels like something that we haven't decided on, but it's imposed on us. We're tricked. We're lied to we're finagled, whatever. So we are simultaneously free and unfree. And that's what I thought this story was about. And it, it seems like a good time to ask perhaps the obvious question, why this book now? Why this retelling? Um, because the world is in just such a terrible state. This was written during the pandemic, was it? A bit, yeah. Quite quickly? No, actually, the honest truth, originally I thought I was going to write an, a little operetta you know, as one does, <laughs> about the shepherd. And I thought, I'm just going to write, and I'm going to have the shepherd and the man from Corinth who takes Oedipus as a baby, and the two of them, and they've been caught, and they're going to be killed. And I thought, a little operetta with the two of them talking. And the man from Corinth saying, oh, holy moly, you've really stuck me in it now. And Antimedes, the Theban shepherd, saying, you know, it's all your fault for taking the baby to Corinth and giving him to the king. Mm. And then I thought, you know, I looked into the story a bit more, and then I thought, oh, no. Where does Antimedes come from? He must have a mother. Ooh, mm. she must be Jocasta's maid. Ooh, yeah. Where does Jocasta come from? Oh, she's one of the sown men's descendants. Yes, yeah. Oh, who are they? They were part of the foundation of Thebes. Oh, how was Thebes founded? And then you go back to Europa. because. Mm. The other thing about the whole story is Europa, from which Europe takes its name, is the much put upon queen. She is raped by Zeus. And Zeus, well, it's not contrition. He offers her something. And she picks law as what she will have back. And her sons will be judges in Hades. And from that, there is the idea that the, the law, the idea that you have something that is separate from people, that is impartial and 
uncorrupt and honest is derived, mm. it is said. And yet it's important to say that the entire book is narrated by Antigone. It's essentially in Antigone's voice. Mm. And I was surprised to find that she really, her story sort of begins at the end in a way. She has um, a terrible time as well. Well, <laughs> Antigone. I, I googled that too, don't yeah. worry. <laughs> Antigone, get, Antigone has an awful time as well. Yeah. But why choose her voice? Ah. Because it was essentially Oedipus' story. As you age, <laughs> you become more interested in non-fiction. And so more and more and more, I find myself thinking, really, the, the, the literary art that I am at the moment, as I have aged, most interested in and most involved with is biography. Now, I, I was when I was finishing this, I, I read Boswell's Life of Johnson. But I had been thinking about that. I'd been thinking about Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians. I'd been thinking about Michael Holroyd's biographies of Shaw, Lytton Strachey, Augustus John, et al., and back. And there's something about one person narrating the life of another person that I find beautiful. It's a perfect mechanism. It really makes sense. And when the person doing the narrating is also invested mm. in presenting an account of the subject arising from their own experience of the subject, like Boswell does with Johnson, then you've really got something that takes off. Mm -hmm. So Antigone's line is her father has, well, he's just known as the, you know, father murderer, uh, mar mother marrier. Mm -hmm. You know, his, his reputation is, has been traduced. And what she wants to do is bring to the attention of the world that this was none of his own doing. He did all, he did everything that is said, but it wasn't of his own doing. And people need to bear that in mind. You know, she's the great um, prolongator of nuance and intelligence. And you look very carefully and you understand what you're being, don't, don't judge, mm. don't, don't react, don't d let rage take you over look at things and you will understand, as she argues, if you look at the case of Oedipus, that none of what happened was of his own devising. And that connects with Europa and the idea of the law. We need to be intelligent and open, as opposed to closed and judgmental. So she, the, the story is, is that she goes into exile with her father, as she did, and then Hermes appears and tells her father everything, because he doesn't know, and he tells his daughter, and then Hermes takes him away to death, and she transcribes that. She dictates to a scribe who transcribes everything back in Thebes. But this is taking place within the context of the civil war that's covered in the third Theban play. Um, Polynices and Eteocles, her two brothers, are at war, and Polynices they kill each other, and Polynices's body, by order of Creon, her uncle, I, Jocasta's brother, has been left to rot. And the dogs are eating it, and the birds are pecking it. And you, 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 you she, Paul, he, he can't, he can't progress unless the proper ritual has been performed. His spirit will roam the earth. He cannot go to wherever he needs to go. Hopefully, the Elysian fields, or possibly Hades. But I mean, he's, he ain't going to go anywhere. So until he's buried. So she buries him. But Creon has said, anyone who buries Polynices will die. So she writes it, goes out to bury, gets caught. Uh, yes, yeah, she dies. She, uh, technically, she kills herself, but 
they would have killed her if she hadn't hung herself. Trust me. By, by using her, though, as the voice, as someone who, who knows the, the people that she's describing, obviously, that sort of made it, 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 laid it let, let it credence in the sense that she also knew the place and she knew the sounds and the smells. And, the, and I, had such, I hadn't expected that I would have such a vivid sense of Thebes. Um, and it made me wonder, I mean, something that we talked about last year was something that um, you had taught me when I was in college, and it was this idea that every, um, every character, no matter how small, you need to sort of know what they had for breakfast and know who their second cousin once removed mm. was. And, um, and I kept thinking, you know, how do you do that in a, in a book that is so set in such a completely different time and place and when there are so many different characters in it? You know, how do you sort of give them each their humanity? And I thought part of that was, again, in the small details that must have been imagined, of course. Um, that sounded authentic in Antigone's voice to me. Mm. Um, but, uh, but were tiny things like, uh, also something else I marked, or tiny things like the sounds. There's lots of bird sounds. Um, there's specifically night jars. Um, I loved at one point. There's cows sort of chewing cud. Um, there's, uh, what I loved was the slightly attention to sort of random unnecessary detail. <laughs> like at the very beginning, and this can't, I mean, this must surely have been your own imagining. Um, I think it's when Cadmus is, um, uh, he's burying one of his, one of the, his men that's been eaten by the serpent. Mm. And he buries the body and then he finds an ear and realizes that he forgot the ear and he puts the, places the ear aside to bury later and then buries it later. Surely that was your own. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But, but, All the bonkers but, bits but, were but, yours. But the serpent, the serpent um, whose Mars is offspring, is and guards a spring where Cadmus and his um, followers are, are, are hoping to drink. The, the serpent did kill them all um, very violently, and the serpent did keep the heads. So when you know they've kept the heads from that, you start thinking, okay, so you're going to bite the heads off, right? Well, then you think, I mean, you know, if you, yeah, it would be easy to take an ear off. <laughs> to lose an ear on the yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or a nose or something like that. So. Yeah, you have help from these materials. Mm -hmm. And also, I, I, um, Robert Graves' The Greek Myths and L'Ompriere's Classical Dictionary are extraordinary books. Okay, Which yeah. kind of, yeah. Were you working from a particular, I think you did say you were working from a particular translation of... Yeah, yeah. Um, the Whitney or Watney, or Watney, I think, yeah. In the, it, it was, it, it was the, um, the version of the play I used was the Penguin classics edited by E.B. Rea. Mm. He, was the, he was the general editor, but he wasn't the translator, although he was a, he was a, um, a Greek speaker and translator. There was, it was someone else, but that was the, it was through that translation I encountered the play when I was at school. Okay. Because it's, yeah. you know, it was like from the 20s or something, or the 50s. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm a creature of habit. I mean, there are many new, no doubt, brilliant and excellent translations, but I st stick to the old one because um, I, I can't bear change. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you to read a tiny bit? And um, the bit I'm going to ask you to read, I was obsessed going through this now. My favorite character by far, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong as well, was the Pythia, the Pythia. Oh, <laughs> who the is prophetess. The prophetess. <laughs> um, so I think this is page 175, roughly. I mean, that was, one of, visited, that was the one of the few, I mean, all the Pythia, the, the this is tr true. I mean, she really? existed. Oh, yeah. God. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, the Delphic Oracle really was a place. And so the priestesses would be usually married women, usually widowed, and they would have the gift, 
and then every I don't yeah regularly a, a, a very important rite would be performed in which they would be bathed and cleansed, and then they would be down in the underneath the temple in a place which allegedly was full of fumes, yes, which, yeah, the, which which intoxicated them. It has a very them, particular smell. Uh, yeah, sort of gassy, methaney, nasty, swampy, rotten smell, and they they saw the future. Well, the, so basically, anytime anyone has a problem, they go to ask the oracle what to do. They can ask her one question, and she sits on this bowl-shaped chair. Yeah, that's real. On, on, a, on high legs. On high legs. And wears a, a young girl's dress, even though she's short, an old white woman, dress. Yeah. And has like a sprig of laurel leaves or something. Yeah, and a, one bowl, hand of and a bowl of water. <laughs> yeah. And you can ask her anything you want, and she will tell you the truth. Um, yeah, yeah. And sometimes she'll, re- <laughs> she'll tell you a lot more than you bargained for. Um, and she might have been tipped off about the questions beforehand because you'd have given the questions the priest, to the priest. Yes. Okay, I wondered about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there are various accounts of what happened, but no, really existed, was the center of the culture. There were other oracles, but the Delphic oracle was the most important because the culture prolongated two ideas which were inscribed over the entrance to the compound. One was um, know thyself, and the other was like the middle path in everything. But we also have to remember the Delphic Oracle has a dark side. So Aesop went there, and the Delphic priests did not like what he said because he criticized them. He ridiculed them. So they planted plate from the Oracle, gold plate or silver plate in his baggage, and found it, and he was taken, he was executed. Oh. He, he, was, he had the cliff execution, taken to the cliff mm-hmm. and thrown off at sunrise. That's what happened to Esau. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was the other passage that I actually had marked that I loved. There's this wonderful passage when Antimides, I am saying this wrong, yep. I'm saying, is walked. Uh, because instead of you think, why wouldn't they just execute them within the walls of the city? But they don't. They walk them off away up Mount Fissum, Fissum. Fissum, yeah. Fissum, and throw them off. <laughs> At dawn. Yeah. At dawn, specifically. Which is also the place where the Sphinx lurked. And she would also, every time you failed to answer the uh, riddle, you know, what walks on four legs at the beginning, two legs in the middle, and three at the end. You failed, off you go. Over the cliff and into the sea. Because you see, by doing that, you damned that soul to perpetual torment. The remains could not be reclaimed oh, by the family. this was the reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this all connects with the very, very famous scene in um, the Iliad where Priam comes to Achilles and begs for Hector's remains, mm-hmm. you know, that have been dragged around the city behind a chariot. Mm-hmm. And eventually Achilles, who is learning that rage doesn't work, gives Priam Hector's body. And apparently that's a seminal moment in European culture. Would you read... This is the oracle part, the oracle. and it's pretty significant misunderstanding that leads to just the page, death. just down to the bottom, or, um, or over. I think just, just over to wherever you, we. I, I like the description of the oracle. Is what I'm asking. At the oracle, Oedipus had paid his fees and performed his rites. He had been vetted by the priests and drawn his lot. Now he was sitting and waiting his turn, under a canopy, strung up to provide some shade from the boiling sun. He was surrounded by other waiting supplicants. 
I hate sitting with the question going around and around in my head, said his neighbour, my mind going back with my mind coming back with every conceivable answer. I'm not thinking now, said Oedipus. I'll do that when I come out. You're a lucky fellow, said his neighbour. Oedipus yawned. I'm just going to close my eyes, he said, if you don't mind. He folded his hands on his lap and let his eyelids droop. Oedipus felt his arm being touched and opened his eyes and looked up and saw a priest with black skin. The priest nodded. Oedipus stood. The priest took him by the hand and led him off. They entered the temple, a relief after the heat outside. Inside was a smell of burnt mutton mixed with a sweet, putrid odour. Oedipus felt strong and certain and sure. He felt his feet moving, taking him forward, one small step after the other. He felt his lungs going up and down as his breath went in and out. Then he descended some steps. The space below was even darker than the temple above. The smell of mutton wasn't so strong, but the putrid, sweet odour was much stronger. There were the drapes, and the priest had one open and was beckoning him through. Oedipus stepped forward and went in, and the priest followed him, and he heard the drape fall behind. He was in an enclosed space lit by brands. There was a smell of burning pitch as well as the other smells. The Pythia, Pythia was on a bowl-shaped seat with three legs. She was old and wore a young girl's short white dress. In one hand, laurel leaves. In the other, a bowl with water in it. The priest bent down and put his mouth to her ear. The Pythia closed her eyes and shuddered as the god entered her. Then she opened her eyes, and the god looked out through her eyes at Oedipus. The priest nodded to Oedipus. He could begin. Am I my father's son? he asked. Yes, of course you are your father's son, said the god through the Pythia, though you would be right to wish you weren't, because you should also know you will kill your father, and then you will take your father's place in the marriage bed as your mother's second husband. He would? What? <laughs> Um, and the, see, the other thing uh, um, I loved about Antigone as a person, as a narrator, which is why I wanted to have her, not anything anonymous like myself, is she makes, as far as she's concerned, when she says the god Hermes, no, sorry, the god Apollo, when she absolutely believes that Apollo enters the Pythia. And when the eyes are looking out, it's the god's eyes. And the Pythia believe that. And Oedipus believes that. And when, at the end of the story, Oedipus hears her father talking, and he says, oh, that's Hermes. He came into me when I was sleeping. Yeah, no problem. Hermes was inside Oedipus's head, telling him his story. And then Hermes is... is, Hermes is um, explanation of Oedipus's backstory, much of which is unknown to him. He didn't know about Chrysippus, for instance. All of that, unknown to him, passed on to her. It's, it's the truth. 
you know, so she's a person who, yeah, of course you can have serpents with gold teeth that are planted and turn into men. Well, that was everyone, though, kind of. Yeah, They everyone. were very accepting of that. Yeah. And at the same time, completely in the world and understood how yeah. people behaved. Yeah, yeah. That's... And understood, you know, coldness and poverty and, um, you know, physical truth. So... But at the same time, didn't think it was peculiar when, uh, you know, giant serpents flew down from the sky. No, or... <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that's absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I love that. Yeah, uh, you don't believe that? <laughs> I, yeah. I found the whole system very um, uh, appealing, I suppose. Um, the idea of there being, you know, multiple gods. Um, and if you angered them, things went badly and then you could do other things. You know, for example, there are plagues, obviously, mm. very timely. Um, timely also to climate change, I found myself thinking of when there's sort of frogs raining down from the sky and, and uh, when all the crops are failing. Um, but these were things that happened because the gods had been angered in ancient mm. Greece. Mm. It just seemed like a nice sort of neat way of explaining things. And I, I definitely would love a, a Pythia to just, I mean, how we could have done with a Pythia the last year and a half. Oh, yeah. Who <laughs> needs an effort? Just yeah. go to the Pythia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but she would have known the truth. <laughs> she would have known the, the truth being. <laughs> well, well, whatever. I don't know what the yes. truth is, but, but she would definitely have known the truth. Um, yeah. She would have told us what to do. And the other thing is, is that as, as, as one ages, I become, you know, I loved realistic novels when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I loved Madame Bovary and so on. I'm less and less transported by re I love re realism, but non-realism like this, which is pure narrative with snakes and gods and whatever, transports me more. And your last three books have been come yeah. from ancient, ancient stories. Yeah, yeah, old material. And I remember reading about Robbie Burns. Robbie Burns said of himself, well, I just, I'm not comparing myself with Robbie Burns. It's his idea, by the way, I'm just trying to communicate. He said, well, I just took a few old, took a few old tunes and a few old songs and I just sort of, I just knocked them up a bit. Was his <laughs> explanation of his work. So it's this idea of working with what is common it's in the world around us, and you can reshape it and reform it. I have that sense increasingly that everything is in, in all art forms, in a way, has surely been done and done. Um, and so it's okay to perhaps not obsess about originality. It's, it's better perhaps to, to make things authentically. And if they, echo, if they echo things that have been done before, that are being doing contemporaneously, then that's okay. That's interesting in itself. But do you think that because you come from an art school background, it's more, your, your culture is more forgiving of that because art looks back and reuses the canon, whereas literature has this obsession with originality. Perhaps so, yeah, perhaps so. Um, yes, I don't, I don't see, the, um, I, I don't see the, the need of it so much, I suppose, in, in literature. Mm. Um, I, should, I'm, I'm, I think it's about time that I should be opening it up to the floor Just here. tell me what your, the novel that was mentioned. If any way you can think of questions now. What was the, what, <laughs> what I'm was the asking, novel that was mentioned? Yes, the Steve, I had this. Oh, this is the, yeah, I have a novel coming out next year now. And That's what's very it called? Much, it's called Seven Steeples. Which, Seven Steeples. Which is apparently also the name of a novel that's already been published. By Kate O'Brien? <laughs> no, no, I can't remember the name of the author. It's a book that was published, I think, in the 1950s. I didn't realize this when I was naming my own novels. Yeah. And I believe titles aren't copyright. No, so they're not. Anyway, there's nothing new under the sun, as you've just demonstrated. <laughs> and the novel that originally was called Seven Steeples that was published in the 50s is about a lady, um, a lady minister, I think, a lady uh, priestess, the word vicar, 
who has seven different parishes and she cycles around to all her different... Uh, Okay. I, I could have completely plucked that. Anyway, that's not mine at all. <laughs> what is yours about? Um, mine is, I suppose, a kind of a companion piece to Handiwork. Um, oh. So it was a book that was written simultaneously to, to Handiwork being written, and it's sort of like uh, the fictional story in a way. But it's, it's kind of an allegory of my life for the past seven years, or the past couple of years. I suppose it takes place over seven years. Um, but it's not a memoir. No, no, it is fiction. It is a novel, but but it's heavily based in reality, as everything I okay. write is. Um, I have more of a sense of uh, more of an urge, I suppose, to tell my own story or the story of the time that I live in, and that's partly out of, I guess, insecurity, feeling that I don't have the confidence to tell other people's stories or to retell the stories from other times. But I know my own small world with absolute authority, you know, so no one can contradict me here. Right, <laughs> right. Because all of this stuff is—it's just there, lying around. It's just—you can—it's—it's you, it's there for you to take. The material is—it's—it's it's waxy. It's incredibly—it's yeah. incredibly malleable, yeah. and you can make it go in in, in many different directions. And it—that's one thing about it. Secondly, it has incredible authority. Um, it has um, real narrative heft. It is definitely about something. It may not be the something that you really feel comfortable with, but it's something. Um, they're also, you read it and you think, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jocasta's knowing and not knowing, for instance, is you look at, you, 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 you encounter that, and then you, if you're me, you think, well, yeah. You know, as Freud said, denial is the most important principle. And you, you know how you, you, we, we, everybody has to live with stuff that they contain, mm. and they don't really spend, pay it a great deal of attention because if they did, it would destroy them. Mm. They kind of just accommodate it and manage it, and she has to accommodate and manage the most incredible amount of incendiary content and stuff and so forth. That I, I would say anybody looking at that would think it would connect. With their own life because everybody has, mm -hmm. some, has some of that in their own life um, and you read it through the prism of your own life as well I think um, like I say I was I was thinking about climate change because yeah. COP 22 was going on when I was reading the bit about the frogs or whatever um, or I was thinking about you know the very contemporary things that I'm watching on Netflix or whatever and about how somebody kidnaps somebody and then they get tortured so that someone and you're like these, these are the same stories um, so you filter them through whatever else is going on in, in your contemporary life Definitely. Yeah. But also they can be a corrective or, I mean, the ancients can be a corrective or a, a rebuke to us mm -hmm. because they certainly had an idea about um, the relationship with the natural world that is um, in some ways superior to ours. Mm -hmm. You have to watch it. You have to honor it. You have to fit in with it. And you have to let it be. Yeah. So, um I mean, the, yes, the I frog... love that because the gods are part, yeah. part animal. And the frogs were worshipped. Frogs were very, very important. Yeah, yeah. That... And and so, the the idea that you, if if you see a lot of frogs moving, migrating, you don't drive your cart over them and kill them. Um, that's true. Yeah. You wouldn't. I've wondered that. I loved that detail. Yeah, yeah they all have wouldn't. to stop the carriages at some point and get out and move the frogs from the road before mm. they can go on. And the frogs just keep coming and keep oh, coming. Yeah, now, that's probably an exaggeration because I had a kind of biblical exodus of frogs. I mean, because mm -hmm. that's a sign that the world is out of joint.
That was Carlo Gebler in conversation with Sarah Bam as part of the Dingle Lit Book Festival in November 2021. You've been listening to the Dingle Lit Podcast. If you want to hear more, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch the interview online, look for Dingle Lit on YouTube or go to dinglelit.ie for more information on upcoming events. Thanks for listening.